0: If you're tired of these promos, supporters get the podcast early and ad-free. Just go to donate.bogosity.tv for the links to sign up. Welcome to the Bogosity Podcast, the week of 19 September 2021. The podcast that's favorite color is clear. This is your host, Shane Killian. Let's promoculate the news of the bogus. One of the lawyers behind the fraudulent Russiagate story is Michael Sussman, and he's just received an indictment from a federal grand jury for lying to the FBI. The question is not about what he did, we know what he did, it's about who he was working for when he did it. Investigators claim Sussman was working for the Clinton campaign when he reported his suspicions to the FBI in September of 2016, which he denies. Currently, Sussman's is with Perkins Coy, who worked for Hillary's 2016 campaign. Sussman himself worked with the Clinton campaign, and has also worked with the DNC in the past. In particular, the completely baseless claim that Trump was using a secret server to communicate with the Russian bank was promoted by Hillary Clinton, and pseudo-news outlets like Slate unthinkingly reported this bald assertion as fact. Prosecutors allege he was representing the Clinton campaign while posing as a tech industry professional. For background, I'm linking to Robert Graham's blog post of November 1, 2016, where he completely debunks the secret server claim. You can read through it in detail if you want to get caught up. The indictment claims, quote, Sussman lied about the capacity in which he was providing the allegations to the FBI, which led the FBI general counsel to understand that Sussman was acting as a good citizen merely passing along information not as a paid advocate or political operative. Sussman's lie was material because, among other reasons, Sussman's false statement misled the FBI general counsel and other FBI personnel considering the political nature of his work and deprived the FBI of information that might have permitted it more fully to assess and uncover the origins of the relevant data and technical analysis, including the identities and motivations of Sussman's clients. His lawyers told the DOJ that he met with the FBI because he believed the New York Times was about to publish an article about the bank. In fact, the Times wasn't running any sort of article, and didn't publish anything even mentioning Alpha Bank for another six weeks. Sussman told the FBI he wasn't acting on behalf of any client, but the indictment lists several cases where he billed the Clinton campaign for meetings with campaign lawyers regarding the issue. I don't have anywhere near enough time to go through all the facts alleged in the indictment, but they read exactly like a cybersecurity lawyer abusing his status to try and distort whatever he can into trying to tie Trump to Russia. Then he fed it to DNC operatives masquerading as journalists, Hillary voiced the claim all over both social media and the news media, and after that, Sussman lied to the FBI about who he was doing all of this for. And all of this is ultimately tied to the activities that resulted in the Steele dossier. He's been formally charged with willfully and knowingly making a materially false, fictitious, and fraudulent statement or representation to the general counsel of the FBI. We'll see what happens next, and how the pseudo-news media manages to spin it. Without advertising. Use the link below to visit this channel on odyssey.com and see many of your other favorites there as well. Orrin Kerr, computer crime lawyer at UC Berkeley and Fourth Amendment advocate, asked a very good question on Twitter. Quote, Question for tech people related to geofence warrant served on Google. How easy is it for a cell phone user, either of an Android or an iPhone, to stop Google from generating the detailed location info needed to be responsive to a geofence warrant? What do you need to do? For what it's worth, I'm seeking info from people who actually know the answer based on their expertise, not from those who are just guessing, or who are now Googling around to figure out what the answer may be. Robert Graham wrote a very good answer in his Errata Security blog, which is worth going through. But first, showing his usual integrity, he mentioned he only had about 80% confidence that this is correct, and called for people to give him any corrections. More on that later. The trick is knowing which thing to disable. On the iPhone, it's called Location Services. If you do start Googling around for answers, you'll find articles upset that Google is still tracking them. That's because they disabled Location History, and not Location. This left location services and web and app activity still tracking them. Disabling location on the phone disables all these things. So that's it, with caveats. Your mobile phone company, like AT&T or T-Mobile, have their own methods of tracking your location, and in fact, modern cell towers can generally pinpoint your location to within 50 feet, but that depends on several factors. A couple of other caveats, quote, Another example is how my car uses Google Maps all the time and doesn't have privacy settings. I don't know what it reports to Google. So when I rob a bank, my phone won't betray me, but my car will. Note that disabling GPS isn't sufficient. The phone relies upon Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, and cell tower info to also confirm your location. Tricking GPS will do little to stop your phone from knowing your location. So, in response to his disclaimer, people responded that Google DOES get your IP address, which can be geolocated. In response, he updated his blog post. Quote, Well, yes and no. It's not something companies log in that way. Thus, when given a geofence request for everything within a certain physical location, logs containing only IP addresses wouldn't be something covered by the request. The log would need a record of the physical location to be covered. Moreover, geolocation by IP address is incredibly inaccurate, often telling you only what city or neighborhood where the IP address is located. I can verify that. In my experience, geolocation does good to get within a two-hour drive of where I currently am. Right now, even though I live in Stanley, North Carolina, according to whatismyipaddress.com, the IP address located me in Lenore, which is over an hour from here. IPv6 did a little better. It found me in Lincolnton, half an hour away. What is my IP.com did even worse. It had me in Seattle, Washington. Quote, Even if Google logged a record of the best guess about location, I'm still not sure whether it would be an appropriate response to a geofence request. In any event, this wouldn't apply to mobile IP addresses. In America, consumer mobile phones don't have public IP addresses, but share the same pool of private addresses. Thus, the IP address from a mobile phone is meaningless for location purposes. He mentions a hypothetical scenario where someone logs into a local Wi-Fi hotspot, the geolocation is accurate, Google resolves that location, and they give that response to a geofence request. Quote, Then, yes, my argument is defeated. A hypothetical geofence request might then get you, which I actually like. It's a good demonstration of why I doubt myself at the top of the post. I don't think this scenario is likely, and hence don't consider it a reasonable rebuttal, but unlikely doesn't mean impossible. I'm still pretty confident that a one-click disabling location is all you need to defeat geofence warrants given to Google." So there never are guarantees, but disabling location will stop Google from responding to a geofence request, even though there might be other ways to track your location. We've talked for years about bogus DMCA takedown requests and how they can be used as backdoor censorship. As awareness of this increases, it stands to reason the political crazies and moral busybodies would find other bogus ways of denying someone's access to the global conversation of bits. That's what the adult site Rule34.XXX found out when they got delisted from Google, but whoever's behind it didn't go the DMCA route. Rule 34 is a site with pornographic images of artistic drawings, no actual pictures of people. It's especially associated with hentai and fan art. When signed administrators noticed they were delisted, they looked for DMCA notices. They could easily send a counterclaim. Except, there weren't any. So when they dug around, and this wasn't in any way easy to find, there was a notice at the bottom which said, quote, "...suspected child abuse content has been removed from this page." So instead of a bogus DMCA complaint that he could easily respond to, apparently someone decided that bogus CSAM complaints would be more effective, since there's no real way to counter them. They did get a complaint from Russian telecom watchdog group Roskomnadzor, who sent them a notice claiming there was CSAM on the homepage, and if it wasn't removed, the site would be blocked in Russia. The site doesn't even have NUDITY on its front page! But it doesn't look like it was Russia. It will be Russian ISPs blocking it, and instead it's been removed from Google everywhere. Another complaint which may be related is one sent to Cloudflare, saying that the site, quote, is directed at underage audiences using bright colors and familiar characters from TV shows like My Little Pony. You've got to be kidding me! The complainant also said, I do not want to be contacted about this. That is why my details are intentionally false. Well, isn't that just special? That's another difference with the DMCA complaint. The complainant has to provide their actual identity so a counter notice can be sent to them. The complainant also claimed to have sent the claim to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. But the Rule 34 admin contacted them, but they said they were unable to confirm if any reports were made at all. Quote, This in itself is very strange, considering if any of the complaints were valid, then I should remove said content? I firmly believe that CSAM complaints are being weaponized as a tool for censorship as Google becomes better by catching bogus DMCA's. So they're preparing legal action, We're currently filing for a suit, and the date will likely be somewhere next month. My lawyer said if Google does restore the page before the date, I can always cancel. I have little faith Google will actually do anything without it, but we'll see. Personally, I think they should continue with the suit, even if that does happen, in order to make sure this doesn't happen AGAIN, or there's at least a process in place to respond to it. You may not care about porn, least of all hentai, but always remember, That's just what they go to first, the kind of thing that people are reluctant to defend. But this isn't about defending hentai. It's about defending the right to participate in society. If they can do it with Rule 34, what's to stop them from doing it with some website, YouTube channel, or whatever that goes against the grain enough for some dishonest person to lie and claim as child abuse material? Do you have children, or nieces or nephews? Are you homeschooling, or just want to counter some of the socialist indoctrination most children get in school? If so, go to bogosity.tv slash Twins, and you'll be taken to a website where you can get some great books for elementary-aged children. The Tuttle Twins books are books about liberty and free-market economics that include children's versions of Bastiat's The Law. Leonard Reed's I, Pencil, and Hayek's The Road to Serfdom, as well as books about the Federal Reserve and how regulations protect business cronies. They'll learn about the harm caused by eminent domain, or regulations passed in the name of safety, and fundamental concepts of liberty. And as you can see from the sample pages on the website, they're all easy to read and nicely illustrated. They're just $9.99 a piece, or get a special discount as well as free bonuses when you purchase all five. You can even buy in bulk to donate to schools and local libraries. So get the Tuttle Twins books at bogosity.tv slash tuttletwins. And now it's time to convey your eyes this week's biggest bug on emitter. And who'da thought it'd be the Boy Scouts? Well, actually, in hindsight, it was bound to happen sooner or later. Only they're not the Boy Scouts anymore, they're the Scouts' BSA. And the Girl Scouts are NOT happy about it. The BSA has always been one of the worst offenders with IP bogosity, after suing all other scouting organizations out of existence, as well as engaging in MPA propaganda by offering, I kid you not, a merit badge for learning about the evils of piracy. If the podcast had existed back then, they definitely would have gotten it. But what's happening now is, they are deliberately misleading parents into thinking they are the Girl Scouts, so people who think they're signing their daughters up for the GSA end up having them join the Scouts' BSA. They allege a lot of verifiable, real-world claims of confusion, including councils using the GSA slogan, posting flyers with pictures of girls in GSA uniforms, families being told that the Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts had merged, and trying to get a newspaper to write an article about boy and Girl Scouts looking for members, even though the recruitment was only by the BSA. Timothy Geigner of TechDirt isn't surprised, quote, It seems like roughly the most predictable thing in the world to have happened, particularly when you account for the actions of local scouts' BSA organizations that seem to actively attempt to instill such confusion. But the BSA has incredibly asked for a summary judgment, saying that no confusion has or ever will exist. Quote, the Boy Scout said in a statement that it has been clear that the groups are separate organizations and trusts that families choose organizations for their children with great care. But as the facts allege, that just isn't true. And you can argue that the facts haven't been proven yet, and that's true, but in a summary judgment, the court assumes all facts to be true to see if there's any reason to go forward. The point is... If all of the facts alleged are true, and there still isn't enough reason to find for the plaintiff, there's no point in going on. But families choose organizations for their children with great care is a statement of fact, which doesn't fly in a motion to dismiss. Denying all of the alleged facts isn't going to get you anywhere. Apparently, the BSA has been trying to compensate for all of their bad PR lately by capitalizing on the GSA's good reputation. So all of that makes the Scouts B.S.A. this week's Biggest Bogun emitter. I want to tell you about the eyeglasses I've been wearing for years. As people can see on my videos, I have a very strong prescription, which makes glasses more expensive, especially when I need computer glasses, reading glasses, prescription sunglasses, and most expensively, progressive lenses for general everyday wear. Go to firmoo, that's F-I-R-M-O-O dot dot TV anytime you need quality glasses at a low price. Once again, that's firmoo dot dot tv. And now let's iconify this week's Idiot Extraordinary! Idiot. extraordinary. So we've been covering the Backpage trial off and on over the last couple of years, more off than on since there hasn't been much to report. We've talked about how they were drummed off the internet because of bogus allegations of sex trafficking, which led to the passage of the even more bogus SESTA-FOSTA, which, if anything, has been hampering law enforcement investigations and has made it more difficult for sex workers to find clients in a safe way. A bit over a week ago, the Backpage trial got started. And a few days ago, the judge declared a mistrial. There were always serious questions about this trial, especially considering the back page complied with all law enforcement requests regarding sex trafficking allegations. Federal prosecutors even came out and said they failed to find any evidence whatsoever of juvenile prostitution. There are also serious First Amendment issues. U.S. District Judge Susan Brnovich had told prosecutors they could bring in evidence showing people were trafficked via the site, but they shouldn't be calling any undue attention to something they haven't actually shown any evidence of, and in fact haven't even charged them with. They're charged with facilitating prostitution and money laundering. It goes back to something we've covered over and over again with evidence in criminal trials. The probative value has to outweigh the prejudicial effects. She made her instructions clear to the prosecutors, and they ignored her, making numerous statements and opening statements and by witnesses with regards to child sex trafficking, which the defendants aren't even charged with. The judge said that the prosecutors had abused the leeway she'd given them, and that, quote, is something I can't overlook and will not overlook. If only she were the judge in the Ross Ulbricht case, am I right? So all of that makes the DOJ this week's Well, that wraps up this I've Got to Stop Sniffing This Ajax edition of the Bogosity Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please go to donate.bogosity.tv for several ways to support and discord.bogosity.tv to join the discussion. Subscribe at Patreon or Subscribestar and you can listen early and ad-free. Thank you for listening. Until next time, here's a quote from Margaret Chase Smith. The right way is not always the popular and easy way. Standing for right, and it is unpopular, is a true test of moral character. The Bogosity Podcast is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution on Commercial or Derivatives 4.0 International License. Bogosity.